end this morning with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather in your name and that we are one body because of the finished work of Christ, that we can have unity and fellowship and joy, and we can encourage and admonish one another and do the things that you've asked us to do as your gathered local church. We pray for those around the world who also join us over the Internet, that you'd bless them and help them find fellowship, that they may be able to enjoy the blessings of Christian fellowship with those who are of like precious faith. And we ask you to give us wisdom and understanding as we open your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we've been studying 2 Corinthians 8, and this is literally, this is literally where we learn about money, giving, and so on in the most concentrated part of the New Testament where this is taught about. So we've been, we're, out, we're on verse 9, and we've already learned a lot of principles about money and giving in this section, and I intend when we get done with chapter 9 to do a summary and talk about the principles that we've learned in these two chapters so that we just see what the Bible says. And as I've been saying every week that we study this, that the number one key theological term found in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is the term grace. It's used multiple times, and giving is called a gracious work, and giving is motivated by the grace of God that's at work in the hearts and minds of Christians. And giving is not something that's done under compulsion. Giving is not something that's done because of law. But giving, generous giving, is the result of grace. And here's in verse 9, we studied this, but I still have some cross-references to do. So let me read it again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, notice the term grace again, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, you through his poverty might become rich. And for those of you who didn't hear last week's message on this, or Sunday school lesson on this, we interpreted Jesus becoming poor as a commentary on what Paul taught in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. In other words, laying aside his divine glory and being found in likeness as a man. And we did not interpret this to be poor vis-a-vis other persons in, in Israel. That Jesus wasn't, uh, in fact, when he talked about the poor, he was never really talking about himself. He was talking about others. Although he did, there's that one verse about the foxes that have holes and so on. But I think that's more commentary on the fact that Messiah is not welcome in his home country than it is Jesus being in abject poverty. So he became poor as far as his, this was a present active participle. So it's a, it's a voluntary thing that happened during the incarnation. And the riches that he imparted to us because of his voluntary humiliation is our salvation. And the point that Paul makes is Christ's humiliation for our benefit gives reason for us to respond to others in a generous and gracious way when we see those other Christians 
that are in need and needing our help. Okay, now let me go to those cross-references that we never got to. Charlene, could you read James 2.5? Pauline? John 1.14, Dale, Romans 5.8, Michelle, Romans 8.32. You got one? 2 Corinthians 6.10? 2 Corinthians 6.10? And Car- Carla, Ephesians 3 and verse 8. Joanne, Revelation 2.9. That's Revelation 2.9. Dick, Revelation 3 and verse 18. All right, Charlene. James 2 and verse 5. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? Okay, the poor, God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, faith to be heirs of a kingdom. Now, in that particular context, James was warning the church against showing favoritism toward the rich. And when that sort of thing happens, and it does happen to this very day, when that very thing happens, it shows that the church is too motivated by money. In other words, we might see somebody who is very affluent and think, boy, they could sure help us out. Whereas somebody else comes who is poor, then we might start thinking, oh, we have to help them. But we should not think that way. Because the riches and the benefit that God's brought to us are not monetary. They are spiritual. And everyone whom God calls to himself and puts into the body of Christ is also given gifts and has spiritual benefit to that body. We, we need one another. We need everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. So that's what that passage is about. Okay, John 1 and verse 14 is about Christ. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, the, the incarnate Christ brought into visible and tangible form, being fully human and fully God, the glory of God that he shared with the Father from all eternity. That's what John chapter 1 teaches about the incarnation. Romans 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All right. Christ's death for us. This, we're commenting on a verse that says that, that though he was rich, he became poor for our sake so that through his poverty we might become rich. And that verse tells us that he died for us. And even though we were sinners, even though we were alienated from God, even though in our hearts and minds we were hostile to God, because all sinners are, whether they realize it or not, um, Christ loves us so much, he died for us. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Okay. If he didn't spare his son, he'll freely give us all things. And Romans 8 is a... If you start with Romans 8, about verse 28, and read the rest of that chapter, you'll see some of the most comforting and encouraging verses for Christians in the entire New Testament. And the assurance that Paul is giving us is that no matter what happens, no matter what happens in this life, no matter how miserable things become, 
God is causing all of this to be ultimately for our benefit, that nothing can separate us from his love, that we're his sheep and he's going to take care of us, and ultimately there isn't any enemy anywhere that can do anything to separate us from God's good love and God's benefit that he intends to bestow on his own children. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10. I'm going to read 3 and 4, kind of introduces it. Okay. It goes, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Okay, so Paul, talking about his own ministry, says, though poor making many rich. You don't have to have money to make people rich. All you have to have is the gospel. Because the gospel is the riches of Christ offered to all who will believe. Ephesians 3 and verse 8. Okay, Revelation 2, 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, your poverty, but you are rich. So there's a church that was very poor, but... The Lord Jesus himself called them rich. Now, in contrast to that, there's the Laodicean church. That's just Revelation 3.18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may be clothed yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. It's, it, what's verse 17? Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Okay. Now, I I, yeah, the, I, then, and then he says, well, you need some riches from me. Well, the, the, here's the irony. The church, which church was it in Ephesians 3? Was that Smyrna or Philadelphia? Smyrna? Three Ephesians, no, excuse me, Revelation 2.9. Is that Smyrna? Okay, so Smyrna was, in material sense, poor. The church of Smyrna was poor. But Jesus called them rich. The church of Laodicea believed themselves to be rich and in need of nothing. The church of Laodicea had real high self-worth. <laughs> you say, I'm rich and need of nothing, and Jesus called them poor. Yes. Uh, it's the antithesis of the prosperity gospel. When you have the church that's prosperous in Jesus' eyes has nothing materially, and the church that's poor in Jesus' eyes has all the material goods, so a church that's preaching material wealth would fall into the second category. Exactly. The, the health and prosperity gospel is a good way to create a lot of Laodicean churches. Now, there is a practical reason for this being the case in the first century in Asia Minor, where those seven churches were that were addressed by the Lord Jesus. In Asia Minor, in the first century, a bunch of the wealth, and, they, and these, some of these cities were very wealthy cities, the wealth was generated because of trade guilds that were quite successful. And these trade guilds that people belonged to were dedicated to idols, demons, and pagan gods. And so many times, if someone was converted and came to the Lord Jesus Christ, if they were a faithful Christian, they would leave those trade guilds. 
because they couldn't in good conscience stay a part of them because the very activities that were required of them were idolatry. And so that often left these first century Christians in poverty because the way they could make a living was taken away from them when they became a Christian. Now, Paul mentioned that the churches in Macedonia, though they were poor, had become very generous in this offering for the benefit of the poor saints in Judea. But the Corinthians were far better off financially than the ones in Macedonia. And possibly part of the practical reason for that can be seen through a study of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians where we see that the, the, the issue in Corinth, oh, oh, several issues, but one of the issues in Corinth was their participation in pagan meals that were dedicated to gods. And you see that discussed in 1 Corinthians 10. So because the church in Corinth was more compromised than other churches, that might be the reason they were better off financially, because they weren't going under the same persecution. Okay? So that's the background there. And it makes it very clear that what Jesus' opinion is when you compare Revelation 2.9 with Revelation 3.17 and 18. Now let's go to verse... 10. Oh, by the way, let me, let me talk about something else uh, that I want to make application to make sure nobody misunderstands this. I've been listening to a series of messages, and I'm, I'm on number seven right now, by John MacArthur about Roman Catholicism. And it is unbelievable. I mean, it is mind-boggling. If you, have not, if you don't understand Roman Catholicism or you have friends that are Catholic, or maybe even if you got saved out of Catholicism and want to thank God for what you got saved out of, I highly recommend that series. And it's an eight-hour eight eight, eight CDs, and you can get it on MacArthur's website for grace to you. But I'm on number seven. But let me tell you why I'm saying that right now. There is another false, there's a false teaching that's the opposite of the health and wealth gospel, but it's just as false. And it's the teaching that in order to be pleasing to God, you have to be poor. Okay? Or that you should somehow, um, this is somewhat like the Colossian heresy. And that came into the Roman Catholic Church, along with the, the requirement of faking oaths of celibacy and, and so on. And so there were these ones that wanted to do works of super irrigation, a work of supererogation is doing something beyond what's required of ordinary persons, above and beyond what Christ even required, would take, and this became a practice in monasteries, they'd take oaths of poverty. And thinking themselves more pious because they're poor, they become elitist and, and special and separate, and the rest of the Christians out there who have ordinary jobs are lesser because they haven't taken an oath of poverty. And I just want to make it clear that when we're reading all these verses, we're not implying that someone purposely needs to put themselves in a state of poverty in order to be pleasing to God. The riches don't make us pleasing to God, nor does abject poverty any more than anything else. And if you really think that what you need is poverty, the Lord can easily provide that for you. <laughs> 
You don't have to take an oath. Okay, it's an easy thing. Okay, go ahead. You're speaking from experience on that one, right? Yes, I, absolutely. I, I didn't take an oath, but I joined a group that required that everybody live in poverty to be a part of the group. We had to quit our jobs, sell our possessions, and have nothing in order to be in that group. And uh, to my, well, uh, we were so young we had nothing going in, so we didn't really give anything up. <laughs> We just went from one state of poverty to another one. <laughs> so uh, I can't say I really gave anything up. But there was still this idea that we were more pious than ordinary Christians. And you can't gain piety by taking O's or purposely living in a really miserable condition. Yes. Going beyond what God says and going a step further, that happened in the Garden of Eden when Satan beguiled Eve and said, Thou shalt not eat the fruit, but he put words in her mouth and said, Thou shalt not even touch the fruit. But that yeah. was beyond what God had she said. She went beyond what God said, and that was not pleasing to God. That's a good point, a very good point. Okay, so we're, Paul's not teaching that people needed to be poor to be pleasing to God. He just was teaching that Christians ought to be generous and that they should help other Christians who are in need of help. And that it's a work of grace that God does that causes Christians to become generous. And my experience, I believe Christians are generous. I've been a Christian since 1971, and I've seen people that know the Lord who are generous. In fact, that's just kind of the way they are. And why? Because they're recipients of grace. That's why. Not because of a law. Let's go to verse 10. Interesting thing here is another place where Paul here gives his opinion but not a command. He says, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is for your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. Interesting that he's not going to make this a command, as he said elsewhere. Earlier in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, we saw a, a verse. Which one was it here? Verse 3. It says, For I testify that according to their ability, talking about the Macedonians, and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. The Greek word translated own accord could legitimately be translated of their free will or freely and willingly. And it's from a word that means to choose for oneself. So when it comes to giving, the Lord doesn't give a command about how much, but he allows Christians to give of their free will. So when we say that we're going to take up a free will offering, we're using biblical terminology. Because Paul was taking up a free will offering. So he says, I give my opinion. His opinion was that they decided a year earlier that they wanted to participate. And then there was this intervening situation where Paul, where they had turned against Paul Paul sent this severe letter that we don't have and waited to see whether they were going to repent and respond to his sincere or severe letter or not. And I'd just gotten word from Titus that they had received it graciously and that Paul was back in, the, back in high esteem, at least among some of the Corinthians, not all of them. And so Paul not, then wanted to, them to complete the offering that they began a year ago. That's what he's saying. So he wants them to complete it. He believes it's in their best interests, and they'd previously shown a desire, says in verse 11, so he would like them to complete it. But he was only giving an opinion here. We see this elsewhere, and I think it's instructive to, to see 
that Paul distinguishes between his opinion and what he received from the Lord. In, in 1 Corinthians 7, when he's talking about marriage issues, he was of the opinion that given the situation they were in in that era of history, that they'd be better off single. But, he said, it was him and not the Lord. Now, I believe that Paul, well, I know that this is the case. Paul said that he saw the resurrected Christ. Okay? And I believe that the truth that Paul received that ended up being into the letters that he wrote, he received from the resurrected Christ, not just by internal inspiration. But, it, but as the other 11 were with Jesus Christ and saw him and talked with him and heard him teach objectively for three years, and then inspired by the Holy Spirit, some of them wrote the New Testament or gave the, the, the material for it, like assuming Peter was the source for Mark's material, and then Luke said he has sources, undoubtedly apostolic ones. Um, Paul re- was like them in a, in a different sense. That Jesus appeared to Paul as one born out of time and literally and objectively spoke to him. Okay, so when he talks about this being single or this, this particular giving situation, he did not receive that directly from the Lord. So therefore, he doesn't try to put his apostolic authority on it. He says, it's merely my opinion. Okay? And in, in 1 Corinthians 7, he literally says we're not, that we're not bound. A person who des- desires to be married is not sinning. Now, well, oh, I was just listening to MacArthur talk about that. Uh, CD number 7. It was done earlier than the first six, which, I, which is clear because as you're listening to him. He talked about the misery and cruelty that the Roman church puts these priests through. Okay? And how this has throughout history resulted in scandals and in a horrible situation. MacArthur says his heart goes out to these people. They are in an abusive situation. They're forbidden to marry. And are in a situation where they have to sit and listen to people give their confessions, which are explicit, and stirring up all kinds of things in their hearts and minds, and they cannot go and be married. Oh, unbelievable. Now, what's so bad about that? Well, because they're binding and loosing falsely and, and, wait, and beyond Scripture. In fact, I'm of this opinion, and I'm going to say this when I'm at Gary Gilley's church when we're talking about Sola Scripture. I'm speaking for five hours there. I believe this, after my own experience and what's going on in our world today and what went on historically, I'll say this. As soon as you say not Scripture alone, but that we can have binding teaching beyond Scripture, and and even though they say the Scripture is still true, but we just have Scripture plus our tradition or Scripture plus our new revelations, or Scripture plus the words of the Latter-day Apostles. Here's my experience, and I think this is always the case. This whole thing is a big lie because they don't go beyond Scripture. They go against Scripture. I mean, not just beyond. They go against. And MacArthur spent four hours talking about the Roman Catholic doctrine of Mary. And this isn't beyond Scripture. This is against Scripture. 
The Scripture says Mary had other children. Rome says she didn't. People that arrogate themselves to being God's mouthpiece aren't satisfied to add things to the Bible only. They have to try to contradict the Bible. And then they will not allow themselves to be judged by the Scripture. When you say to a Roman Catholic, here's what the Bible says about Mary, they're aghast. They think you're a blasphemer for just telling the truth about what the Bible says about Mary. Because they did not get their doctrine from the Bible at all, and their doctrine is against the Scripture. And so I, I, if you want to know about this, I tell you, I don't get a cut. Get MacArthur's CDs. Okay, go ahead. Well, and, that, and that was what I was going to say but about the uh, celibacy issue. And it's... First Timothy 3 says that if a man desires the work of a bishop or a.k.a. a head pastor or could kind of somehow translate into the priest of the Catholic Church, that he should be of one wife. Husband of so, one so wife. So that, yeah. I mean, how, how else is he going to relate to the females in his congregation if he doesn't have a wife at home to relate to? And uh, so, yeah. like you said, it's not, it's not just unbiblical, it's anti-biblical for them yes. too. Yes. Yeah, it, that's right. It's, that's a very good way to say it. It's better than I said it. That's easy to remember it's not unbiblical. It's not just unbiblical. It is unbiblical, but it's also anti-biblical. And when you have two sources of authority, one scripture and the other some human authorities later, the human ones will disregard the scripture whenever they see fit. And Rome is living proof that, you, that they can disregard the scripture ad infinitum. Yes. As you know, I love your bunny trails. You know, they're wonderful. But... <laughs> Oh, I got on this because of O's of Poverty. I just wanted to ask you if you want to get back to O's of Poverty. Okay. Yes. Opinion? In here, if Paul is saying it's opinion, how do we treat it? Opinion? Or okay. Do we treat that's, it as the word okay, of God? that's... I had an interesting discussion out in California with somebody about that because when I heard that Michael Heiser, I brought that up, that, that this revelation came objectively. And then when Paul hadn't gotten that objectively, he had an opinion. He just said that's what his opinion and so somebody afterwards challenged me and said, well, are you saying that's not Scripture? It's in the Bible. That makes it Scripture. I said, yes, but here's what we know. What we know was that in 60 A.D. or whenever exactly it was, that Paul held the opinion that, that they'd be better off single. That much is true because it's reported in Scripture. But it doesn't make his opinion binding law because it wasn't even binding law then. So it's just an interesting truth that we know that this is Paul's opinion. Right. Same thing. We just follow here. What do we learn from this? Well, it was his opinion that those particular Corinthians at that time in history would be better off if they finished their offering. That's what we know for sure. Inherently and infallibly, we know that to be sure, true. But well, we can make application of it just like we can the thing in 1 Corinthians 7. There may be some people who are better off to stay single. In fact, I'm sure there are. And it's sometimes been just proven through a lot of heartache and tragedy. But on the other hand, there's no binding church law that forbids marriage because, as MacArthur pointed out, forbidding marriage is a doctrine of demons. Amen. And how do you dare preach as canon law what you know to be a doctrine of demons. That just shows you the impiety of those who would take leave from the Scriptures. And then they feel like they can teach anything they want because it doesn't matter what the Scriptures said because we speak for God. Yes. 
Yeah, so when, when Scripture gives us Paul's opinion, it still remains Paul's opinion, and we can be certain that it's Paul's opinion, but Paul isn't God, and God still gives us liberty yeah. to do what... And we don't even know it's still Paul's opinion now that he's in heaven. And, and <laughs> it was what, Paul's opinion when he wrote this. And the opinion of others, they can have wisdom, and we can look to others for their own yeah. wisdom as long as they give it as their opinion. But if once they say it's not my opinion but God speaking, then, then they've gone against the Bible, and it is anti-biblical. Right. That's, that's a very good application to binding and loosing. Binding and loosing is about forbidding or permitting, and the only valid binding and loosing that can be done in Jesus' name is when we bring out valid implications and applications of Scripture that do bind us. Meaning, we know what God's moral law is and we know what it looks like to transgress it. All right? But if we have an opinion, that's not binding on anybody. And the opinion of a church prelate or whoever it might be, be it pope, cardinal, bishop, pastor, elder, anybody, whether it's a legitimate or illegitimate office, those opinions are never any more weighty than than what they are. Okay? And you can follow it or not follow it. And the opinion may even be some sort of wisdom, human wisdom. But, um, well, Keith's famous statement, it's not a sin to be stupid. (laughs) You're living proof. Okay. (laughs) What do we mean by that? Well, you, you might tell somebody, don't buy don't buy that car. Don't buy that car. It's going to be a lemon. I've had that kind before, and they they say, "Well, I like it." Or maybe you got to. This happens a lot of times with young people. My, <laughs> my, yeah. No, I mean teenagers that are getting cars. They don't always use the most wisdom about what would be a good car to get as a teenager. You know, they may want something with you know a tiny little car with a great big high horsepower V8 that's going to use tons of tons of gas, and they're probably going to go out and get in an accident. So the dad says, that's not a good car to get, and they go get it anyhow. Well, that's their liberty to be stupid. That's like my, like my, my, bro, my, my youngest brother was in college, and my dad was going to get him a car, and, and my brother refused it. And, and dad says, well, what's wrong? I've got a good deal on this car, and I'll buy it for you, and it'll be great. And, and my brother says, it's a four-door. And dad said, well, maybe you're going to get a family. I'll need a four-door. And my brother says, if I have a four-door, I'll never get a family. <laughs> so he got a two-door. He doesn't have a family either. It didn't work. <laughs> All right. Let's look up some more. <laughs> have you ever tried to use reason with a teenager? <laughs> Were you ever a teenager? <laughs> and have your dad try to use reason? Um, Glenn, you want to read one? Nice to have you in Sunday school. <laughs> Proverbs 19.17. <laughs> but it's only my opinion that it's good to go to Sunday school. <laughs> Proverbs 19.17, and then um, Larry, Philippians 4.17, and Dave, uh, 1 Timothy 6.17-19, and Lois, Hebrews 13.16. Hebrews 13.16. Okay, first one is Proverbs 19.17. He who is gracious to the poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Okay, he who lends Amen to that. Yeah, amen. He who lends to the poor lends to the Lord. And so the next one is Philippians. Philippians, you having trouble finding it? Yeah. Well, while you're looking, we'll go over to Dave. 
uh, 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19. It's an instructions to the rich, I think. Yes. 17 through 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us all with things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation in the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Wow. It's almost commentary on Luke 12. And this, the idea of storing up, remember in Luke 12, the, the rich fool stored up everything so that he would never have to depend on anybody or even on God. And he was going to have everything he ever needed. And the Lord called him a fool. And Paul's instruction, notice though that they didn't have any oath of poverty or anything. Paul didn't say, instruct the rich of this world to give everything away and put, give away and get rid of their capital assets and become people who live in poverty. He didn't instruct that. He, sa- he says, be rich in good works and be generous and don't be conceited. In other words, the fact that you, for whatever reason, have used your talents however you used them, and the, or maybe you had a good big inheritance, but for whatever reason, life brought you many riches. Paul's instruction is to not be conceited. Why does he say that? Because it's very easy to think that if we're better off than other people, we're actually better than other people. It's not true. Or that there's some innate superiority in us that made us able to be in a better situation. But it's required that we'd walk humbly and realize that everything we have is only because God's very gracious. That even if we breathe, it's because God's gracious. If we eat, it's because God's gracious. And if we have material wealth, it's because God's gracious. So don't be conceited and be generous and so on. And then use the storehouse analogy. You're actually storing in heaven like Jesus said. Okay, then we had Philippians 4.17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Yeah, Paul was in Philippians. He was expressing gratitude to the Philippians for their graciousness and their generosity. Because Paul was imprisoned, and so many of the churches that he'd been at before turned against him, and he would, and many would actually look down on him because he was in prison, thinking, well, if you were a great man of God, you should be able to do something besides land it yourself in prison. But the Philippians sent Epaphroditus with a gift that he risked his own life to get to Paul. And Paul wanted them to know that his gratitude wasn't just because he wanted their gift, but because of what the gift meant, their support for the gospel and their their spiritual attitude that they have. So that's what that verse was about. And then Hebrews 13, 16. But to do good and to communicate forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. King James, what does that mean? To be, to communicate, meaning to give. Okay, Hebrews thirteen sixteen. Let's go to verse eleven. I want to spend about seven more minutes here. And somebody asked, and I think it was a good request, that we'd have a little debriefing session to talk about what we learned from Ray Youngen. At least those who were here, Ray Youngen spoke about a number of topics about mysticism in the culture and then how that's come into the church. So 
We'll, we'll do another verse, and I want to spend a little bit of time debriefing or discussing what we learned from Ray Young and making applications of it. Verse 11, but now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. Let me read verse 12 as well. For if the readiness is present, this is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Interestingly, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Remember, we talked about faith pledges and determined that they were unbiblical. Well, here's a verse that says straight up that they're unbiblical. Paul says, don't give according to what you don't have. In other words, you don't impoverish your family so they can't eat so that you can give to the church. And you don't make a faith pledge that you're going to give what you don't have. If you don't have, don't give. Does that make too much sense? (laughs) Okay. Well, we were talking about this. In fact, your example, <laughs> your example, Glenn, was a good one about that, where they're saying, okay, we want to build a new educational wing and it's going to cost $5 million and the church doesn't have the money and we know you don't either, so why don't you make a faith pledge of, let's say, 5000 or or 1000 or whatever you're going to do, and then if you get that amount of money by such and such a date, you're supposed to give it to the church. Well, it's always free. Yeah, yeah, it's always free. So we talked about that, and I think that would come under this giving what you don't have. If the Lord prospers you, you're free to give. But you, you, it's uh, even those businessmen and James were, were rebuked for saying, we're going to go to such a city for a year, and we're going to do business and make great profit. And, and James rebukes them and says, you don't even know if you're going to be alive, much less make a profit. So just say, you can go have a business, you can go make a profit, but you don't know that you will. So I think if the businessmen don't know the future, and you and I don't know the future, the church leaders don't know the future either. So they should not ask Christians to give toward an unknown future that, that nobody knows. And the, the church should do like those businessmen are rebuked and told to do. If the Lord wills and such and such, we shall build Uh, Casey. Okay, so a while ago I was listening to John Piper, and I have a lot of respect for his teaching, and he was talking about giving and about um, not taking a vow of poverty, but that giving should be something sacrificial for Christians, that we should be sacrificing, maybe even suffering a little bit for... um, in what we're giving to the church and to missions and so on. So it's not as extreme as a vow of poverty, but it is a stronger stance than what you are saying, I think, about Well, that's a stronger stand than what Paul is saying. How would you respond to that? I don't, I don't believe that that's what Paul's saying. I, I, I don't, is that a logical... Here's what, oh, if, I, if you didn't hear that, she was talking about a pastor who said that you should be sacrificially giving to the point where it really hurts and is more than you could do, uh, or you would think was reasonable to do. And I'm saying that we have in 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9 the most concentrated section of the whole New Testament that tells us about giving, right? And I'm saying that we should follow the biblical pattern, right? And in the biblical pattern, Paul didn't ask for sacrificial giving. He just asked for people to give what they were capable of. Now, Paul did commend some who had done that, but not to make them works of super irrigation. 
He said the Macedonians gave out of their poverty and they begged us to do it. That's fine because Paul didn't tell them they had to do that, nor did Paul suggest that if they did, they're better Christians. But they just did. So they're free. They're, they're still doing it freely. So freely is the key word, yes. You mean I might sacrificially help my children out because it gives me pleasure to help my children out. So it's a sacrifice in one hand, but it's a very big pleasure in the other. And I think the same thing coming from a, I'm so grateful for the gospel I might want to give, and it's sacrificial, but it's coming not to yeah. a sacrifice just because they like it. Right. It's not an expression of moral law. And I, I think a lot of the commandments on giving and funding churches... I mean, they go back, there's all kinds of ways his, history is having us fund church. They had state churches in the state, England, a lot of the they states in Europe. They, had a, they imposed a 10% tithe on the citizenry to support the state churches so they can sub, run the state churches. The Puritans came up with a, a way where you would actually do the, you'd sign and buy a pew, and by giving how many pews were sold, then I could have a budget and I would put in place a pastor. The, uh, MacArthur was saying that you had to pay for the Mass. The Catholics did that. The Lutherans put in place uh, a budget item so they would have a, everyone would, would sign up for a budget item. Here's what I'm willing to pay for next year. And based on that, they'd, ha- they'd hire a pastor and build churches. But it, was a, it was for the civil institution of just trying to keep a building up, and it was a way of budgeting. But once you transition that into a, a religious activity, then it screwed it all up. Yeah. So it's a... Free, uh, the, the Bible talks about free will when it comes to giving. Yes, uh, Al, he was the first one. So based on your teaching, how does Twin Cities Fellowship budget for future for a future year? We only, the good question, he asked how Twin Cities Fellowship budgets. We don't budget for the next year other than we look what came in last year and we try to make a budget somewhat reasonable based on that with enough non-necessary items that if it didn't come in, we wouldn't die. Is that right, Dick? Yeah. We just say, okay, here's what was given last year. We're not assuming any increase, all right, because, well, we learned how to do this. I'll tell you how we learned how to do this. In 1989, we had a budget of whatever it was. Um, And 1990, we had less than that. 1991, we had less than that. 1992, we had less. 93, we had less. 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, all the way to 2003. Every single year. Yeah, we we started at 259,000 for the year in 89. And by the time we got to 2003, we were at 140,000. And this is with inflation. So we got really good at creative budgeting. And what we did... Spend less, spend less, spend less, spend less, spend less, spend less, until we finally couldn't afford to be in the building, so then we realized we had to sell it. If the Lord wanted us to be able to be in his building, he'd fund us to be in there or send the people or whatever. How many times did we ask the congregation for money during that time to make special offerings? I think there's, the only one I can remember, there's only one time we asked, and that was when, in the middle of the winter, the plumbing burst out on, on the way to the street. It, yeah, the, the plumbing burst... And we absolutely had to spend this 2000 because the city told us we did, and the money wasn't in the bank to spend. And so then we asked, because it was, we had to pay our taxes, and we didn't find a gold coin in a fish's mouth. <laughs> but we never, we, we didn't take up a special offerings for anything. We just lived on what we had. Yes. 
Could that sacrificial giving, I think, that came up in that question be something of a misapplication of what comes out of that 21st chapter of Luke because of the wording where it reads that those uh, wealthy gave out their riches, but the widow gave out of Oh, the widow's right? Yeah, could it be a misapplication of that? Yeah, um, I heard that MacArthur made an interesting application of that and said that the widows, that we telling widows they should give everything is not what Luke had in mind, and I don't think so either. What he had in mind was people judging one another based on who gave what and the realizing that God's perspective on it is different than man's. Okay? Uh, it, the widow, I would not command widows to get rid of all their capital assets. But nobody commanded her to do it. She just did it. I mean, it, it wouldn't have process that be considered normative. No. It's not normative for the widow. To, in fact, uh, elsewhere, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for devouring widows' pensions. That's right. Right? You, you, for a pretense, you devour widows' pensions. And that's a bad thing. Okay. And John MacArthur said that, because I heard that CD, um, you bring men around her and you help her out. You take her out of her absolute pro- poverty. But what he was showing to the apostles is that they were duping her into giving everything and just letting her suffer. Because they were devouring widows was one of their sins. Yeah, devouring widows' pensions was one of their sins. All right, I said we'd do, do a debrief. Now, I know you weren't all there, but some, some of you were at the Ray Young Seminar. For those who weren't, let me give a recap of what he taught. His first hour was about how the, the society we live in has been infiltrated and permeated with mysticism. He talked about Reiki which I found interesting. I didn't know a whole lot about that. I haven't researched it myself. But that actually, it's, it's based on demons and spirits, okay, and these chakras and healing and stuff that even are practiced in hospitals and doctor's office are occultic practices because we now live in a, um, because of the post-modernity and all the things going on in, in a society, we live more like pagans in America, and we think like pagans, and the pagans always see life as infused by spirits, and that these spirits and, and the manipulation of spirits is the secret to your well-being. And so that was his first hour. And then in the second hour and third, he showed how all of these ideas and teachings have infiltrated evangelical churches through various practices, but in particular he was talking about contemplative prayer contemplative prayer being a practice of repeating a word over and over again until the mind loses all thought. And once you get into that state of thoughtlessness, then you hear the voice of God. Now, I'm going to preach a sermon this morning that shows how God actually came and spoke and, and uh, it's about the uh, Sinai and the advent of Yahweh to Sinai. And he, and he actually really did speak there, and they did not have to repeat their sacred word. <laughs> and, in fact, yeah, they didn't have to empty their mind. They didn't have to repeat a sacred word. In fact, the, 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 the God actually speaking was so awesome that when they got done, and he spoke the Ten Commandments, when they got done, they said, don't do this again. <laughs> we, don't, we do not want to hear God speak because... We think he's going to kill us. So, Moses, we, we'd rather have you go up, and, you know, and then God writes them on his tablets and come back down. And when Peter mentioned the Mount of Transfiguration, 
and he said that they had the word of prophecy made more sure. They saw him, they heard him, and, and so on. So what we're being told today is that God is desiring to speak to us, but we have to use special techniques to hear what he's saying. And Ray Young and very uh, well did a very good job of refuting that whole type of thinking. That's what it was about. Now, I want to open it up. Some, some asked for discussion. Is there any discussion on what you heard at Ray Youngin? Implications, applications. If not, I'll just keep talking. Let's, let me ask some questions. I, uh, maybe that's something I should do more of it. Oh, Keith is willing to... No, we got one. Okay, Roger. Roger well, one of the things you can observe in Scripture is, is the people's reaction to any time the Lord spoke or an angel of the Lord spoke usually started out by saying, get up off the ground or fear not. Fear not, because yeah. it scared the pants off. Yeah, it scared people when God actually did speak because they know that they're sinners. I think what shocked me uh, the last few weeks talking about the same concept of how our cultures become infused with that is that the Democratic Convention, the, the headlines that I was watching is, the spirituality of the Democratic Convention. The whole concept was spirituality, not Christianity. And talking about what we're, you know, how spiritual you are is perceived right now as being a good thing. The flavor or the kind of spirituality is immaterial. All spirituality is one. All spirituality is good. You have your flavor. I have my flavor. And yeah. we're a spiritual people. And we're, we believe in spirituality. And we believe in the good things that spirituality brings us. And the concept is bunk, because Christianity brings us something that's different. Everything else is paganism. It's a pagan yeah, spirituality. Right. And as, a, as a, a nation, and as a political system, and as a cogent thinking people, embracing spirituality or paganism is a step backwards. And it's a Christianity that stands up and says there's a right, there's a wrong, there's an objective truth that we can pursue. Yeah. Setting aside objective truth is going to be bad. Don't do it. Yeah. And there's an opposition in this Christianity to a, to a freestyle spirituality. And that yeah. concept was really shocking to me to see it promoted as such and as a good thing. Yeah, and I think, let me comment on that. I would say this. Whenever we depart from the authority of Scripture, God has spoken. And the principle of sola scriptura God has spoken through Scripture alone, then we open ourselves up to the word of the spirits. All right? All other speaking for God comes from spirits or from human imagination or both of the above, human imagination infused by spirits. And Keith, uh, I think what he says here, we can observe quite easily by just watching Oprah. Right? In a sense, you could just call that Oprah spirituality. It seems winsome, would you not say? It seems desirable. In, in nice, the people who testify about Oprah-type spirituality seem like ordinary, thoughtful, kind people. And they're testifying that they've had a very, very good experience with the spirits, although they don't say it that way. But the Bible tells us that the entire world is infused with spirituality, and it's a bad thing. The spirits that mutter and peep, the diviners, 
the necromancers, the spiritists, and that these spirits have as their goal and their purpose to deceive humans. They, they have a nefarious purpose, and it always is, even if they heal you, and even if they answer your questions, and even if they solve your problems. The spirits that deceive may do something good up front to gain further access So they're called familiar spirits, and a familiar spirit is a spirit you made friends with. And people make friends with spirits because they wanted to solve the problems. The Bible protects us from that. How? By God speaking objectively to his chosen mediators. And that we know, the God that we know. Moses was God's chosen mediator. He spoke to him objectively, face-to-face, as the man does his friend. Moses wrote down the law that God gave him. And Moses gave objective tests for anybody who claims to be a prophet. And if they fail the test, then God did not send them. And they are just there as judgment upon people that don't love the truth. Yes, Gretchen. Okay. Uh, I... uh participate in a self-help program which does impute spirituality to familiar spirits. But I refute that with my others in the program. I say, I believe in God, and it's the Christian God. And I think any, any, any program, or, and there's so many times when spirituality is imputed, but it's not it's biblical. God. Yeah, I know. Everything's spiritual. And in fact, and this is coming into the church, there is a DVD by the title, Everything is Spiritual. All right? And uh, someone transcribed that DVD for, for me so I could quote it, and I, and I have quoted it. And this, the claim being made, Rob Bell makes the claims, the claim is that, that everything should be seen as sacred and holy. Well, in my rebuttal to that idea, I'm saying if everything is sacred and holy, then nothing is profane. And we don't have any decisions to make between what's right and wrong, true and false, holy or profane. And by supposedly elevating nature to some sort of special holy sacred status, then the holy ground that Moses was standing on wasn't holy because it was ground. It was holy because God's theophany was there. But in Rob Bell's teaching, all ground is holy, irrespective of anything else. It's the antithesis of what happened at Sinai and setting something aside because you can't have a, a holy God that's separate when everything is perceived as holy. Yeah, if everything's holy, everything's spiritual, everything's sacred, then... By the way, this is equivocating on the term spiritual, and it it deceives people. The postmodern idea of spiritual, which we've been discussing here, and which Ray Youngen was talking about, is not what the Bible talks about when it talks about spiritual. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and verse 14, it says that a natural man receives not the things of the the Spirit of God, because they're spiritually appraised. So natural and spiritual, as used in the Bible, are two different categories, and the categories are determined by one's relationship to God. 
Okay? It's a false teaching to take the doctrine of God's omnipresence and then apply it to everything and say, well, everything's infused with God, so everything's spiritual. That is panentheism, saying God is in everything. All right? Yes, God is omnipresent, but when it talks about God being present in his people and with his people, it's talking about relationally, not just geographically. Okay, so the natural and the spiritual in 1 Corinthians 2.14 is related to God through the cross or not. And if you're devoid of the Holy Spirit because you haven't believed the gospel, then you might be spiritual, but you're deceived and you're lost. So don't be deceived by people saying everything is spiritual because they have just devalued true spirituality. They've just erase the boundaries between what the Bible means by the term spiritual when it uses it and what is not spiritual. Okay? Those types of societies are the ones where you have the untouchables and people dying in the street because nobody values humanity anymore and every human is just as much God as a bug. Yeah, that's what happens when everything is considered like, yeah, when you erase the boundaries. He has an announcement about chairs. From the spiritual to the mundane... 